0: This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here this morning with Kelly Martin, and our readers are probably familiar with her from pictures and calendar notices over the years, and she hardly ever appears in these pictures alone. She sometimes has an owl on her hand. She's sometimes with a deer or a porcupine. She is an animal rehabilitator. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I would just like to start with finding out and you've been doing this I think for 37 years at least. How how did you begin this?
1: What what started it off? Well, I think Going way back, I um, had parents that should have said no when they didn't. Every animal in the neighborhood that needed help ended up at our house, and my parents were um, very generous with opening the door to these things. So long before I knew it was a licensed activity or really knew what I was doing, we were trying to take care of animals even when I was young. In terms and where, of
0: where did you grow up?
1: I actually grew up in Alabama. Oh my gosh! Okay. <laughs> my father worked for IBM, so we did you know a little bit of traveling but we were in alabama for most of my uh, you know formative years and you're in burn now in Bern, yes yeah.
0: but with, so you were in a rural area in alabama where animals no, were, no actually
1: it was kind of a you know a suburb neighborhood yeah. but you know the most common things you might think robins and squirrels because they're in everybody's backyard right. but also domestic animals you know stray dogs cats all ended up at our house And so you just had a natural way with them? You were able to... Well, we certainly had our failures because we didn't know what we were doing, especially with the wild animals. Um, But a lot of the other domestic things we just ended up, you know, keeping as as our own pets. And uh, in terms of actually getting very involved in rehabilitation... Uh, we got transferred back to New York, and I happened to find two injured opossums on the same night and didn't know what I was doing with them, and um, I was living in the Binghamton area at the time. And the zoo director at the... um, Ross Park Zoo in Binghamton, I met at an event, and I told him about finding these animals and what should I do. And he advised me that, first of all, you needed to have a license to do this, (laughs) and then gave me some advice on husbandry and veterinarians to go to, to to see about dealing with the problems these animals had and uh, he said you know you ought to get a license and that sort of started me down the path of doing this officially so the licensing is handled by the state's department of environmental conservation the yes it is Um, in new york state a license to rehabilitate wildlife allows you to take care of mammals
0: reptiles and um, game birds and just if you could walk us through the process of getting a license, how do you learn to do this, and what steps? It's a good do you have question,
1: and I think there is a, a bit of a, a gap in the New York State licensing. We we actually were very proud for many years of our program in New York State. We kind of pioneered a lot of the um, licensing aspect of it, encouraging people to get education. You do have to pass a test in New York State. We were the first state to do that. The The gap is you can pass that test on paper and never have touched a wild animal. So there's no component so there's about no, hands-on. No hands-on component. Now, in order to handle federally protected migratory birds, you do have to have a federal permit from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And do you have that as well? I do. Okay. I do. And with that permit, you, you actually have to apprentice or mentor with somebody for a certain number of hours before you can get your own permit to do birds. So we, we need to do a little catch-up in New York State with that. Now, we always encourage people to apprentice or mentor with somebody or volunteer, but it's not required at this point. We, we'd actually, um, when I say we, um, we do have a state Wildlife Rehabilitation Organization, the New York State Wildlife Rehabilitation Council.
0: And you were president of that. I am,
1: for longer than I care to admit. <laughs> um, but but we're we're not a center. We're a statewide education organization. We, we have a newsletter. Um, we host a conference every year. And we bring in people from all over the country. I, I'm very proud of our conferences. Um, those are state of the art. And, and people, speakers love to come back because it's just a great venue for sharing and training and, and for people to connect with other rehabilitators. Um, so through the council, you, you can get training. There is a national organization that has a conference. So those opportunities are there, but we'd actually like to see a continuing education component required um, because also things change Year to year, in terms of best, you know, best practices, best diets, best husbandry, you know, medical skills. Um, So we'd love to see that happen. How many members does this group have? We we seem to whatever the licensed group is, be it twelve hundred, a thousand. We we tend to retain about a third membership. Mm -hmm. Um, I I kind of think our best uh, delivery services to people who are beginners and intermediate. So once they they gain those skill sets and think they know it all, mm-hmm. they tend to not, you know, maybe remain members. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so when you yourself went through the licensing process, you took the written test, but did you also... Well, let me just say oh, that no. I've been
1: doing this long enough that I actually kind of got grandfathered in, grandmothered oh. in. <laughs> <laughs> because there wasn't, uh, our the council helped DEC develop that program where the I licensing see. was a requirement. So those of us that have been doing this long enough d- didn't have to take a test. Um,
0: so after that experience with the two, did you say opossums? Opossums. Yeah. Did they end up living those Yes, two? they yeah. did, actually.
1: I was so, able to release them.
0: So uh, how did you yourself learn when you said there was no, you were grandmothered in. there was no, society then to teach you or to have seminars or to help you. How did you? I
1: did, again I relied, I actually ended up working at Ross Park Zoo after I um, met the director and he, he actually was running a wildlife rehabilitation program at the zoo at the time and um, he got me involved in the state organization, he was in on the beginning of mm-hmm. it and the zoo actually sent me to these national conferences it was a wonderful uh, learning opportunity for me
0: yeah. So the essential difference, though, between a zoo animal and what you do is your goal is to get the injured animal well again and back into Correct. the wild yes. as opposed to yes, we, the public would um, be looking at The that.
1: description of what we do is we take care of sick, injured, orphaned native wildlife with the goal of trying to return a healthy animal to the wild.
0: So the idea, I would think, of all of you that are licensed is it's a way so that the public who... I don't know, every year we get people calling our newspaper <laughs> saying in the spring, oh, I found a little deer. Yes, and yes. I always try to say, don't try yeah. to rescue that deer. But yeah. the idea is the public can be largely ill-informed, and they should call a rehabilitator if they find a genuinely injured animal.
1: Correct, and you put that very diplomatically. <laughs> <laughs> Not being well-informed. Uh, yes, it's true. I'm, I i in addition to doing the rehabilitation aspect of this, a natural offshoot for some of us is to take on the public education aspect of this. And that is um, we have different licenses and permits that allows us to keep some things permanently that are unable to be returned to the wild. So they kind of become ambassadors for their species or for just, as you said, public information and education. I'm very surprised how little people know about what lives in their backyard and when they should or should not um, interfere or rescue.
0: Well, give us the basics so people will know. When, When should you interfere and when should you just step back and say this is nature?
1: I think some of it is such common sense that if a wild animal allows a person to walk right up to it and touch it or it walks up to you, then that's a big red flag that something is wrong. It it's either injured and physically cannot, you know, run or fly away from you, um, or diseased to the point of being unable to run or fly away from you, or it's too young and it and it just is incapable yet of that kind of mobility. But that should be a big red flag that that something is wrong. In the case of young animals, um, that's where people make the biggest mistake is rescuing things that don't really need to be rescued. As you brought up deer, that's a big one. There's nothing more irresistible than a fawn uh, to people that find one curled up by itself, don't see the mother, and start getting very concerned that it's abandoned, it's orphaned, it needs help, and often that is just not the case. Uh, The other common example are fledgling birds because people don't realize they don't fly right away. Uh, It takes them some time to develop that skill, but the parents will feed them on the ground. And it's the inclination when you see something that appears so helpless and defenseless to rescue it and help it and save it. And sometimes that's just the wrong thing to do
0: so where do you care for these animals ha- at my house <laughs> <laughs> i mean do you have a barn or do you- i don't have a barn i'm not a,
1: a farm i actually mm. live in the middle of state land but i do have a lot of outside cages now i have a room that is dedicated to wildlife i don't have wild animals running and flying freely in in my house i mean i have pets but but not the wildlife and so there are Our times, either when things are on a feeding schedule that they need to be inside on heat or recovering from an an injury or a disease where, again, having them inside in that room is, is a critical part of their care, once they're able to go outside, then we move them outside.
0: And I'm sure there's no typical month in your work, but just could you describe to us the kinds of animals that come to you and what you do for them or what state
1: they're in? Just even, and I I would say that this year, with our weather being so wonderful, Mm. I say sarcastically, that it it seems to be a slow start to what we refer to as baby season, which is our busy season when animals are nesting. And it, it generally coincides when people are doing more activity outside where they encounter these things. Well, the weather's been so bad I actually, knock on wood, have had a slow start to my baby season which I'm very happy about um, because we can get very overwhelmed pretty quickly. But, But even so, just in the last month um, again, it's been a slow month, but I had a call about a um, a great horned owl, an owlet, a baby on the ground, and we were not able to locate the den tree. Uh, we looked around quite a bit couldn't find it. So if you had found it, what would have happened? Well, <laughs> if if it were possible to return it to the nest we try. It did seem to so be So you like uh, get a
0: ladder and
1: well, I <laughs> I, I, just... I haven't had to do this too often. I have friends who do exclusively birds in Maine and they have they recruit uh, logging companies, uh, electrical, you know, Mm -hmm. like National Grid with their bucket trucks to try to, because owl nests are going to be very high up in a tree. And they do try to return them. If we can return them safely and the baby is not, you know, too weak or hurt, then, then we try to reunite when we can. The, the owlet did seem to be a little young to be out of the nest. Um, it was thin, so it had not been being fed and we just couldn't locate the tree. Now, my adult great horned owls that are my education birds, um, become foster parents in that oh, case. Isn't we that nice. Yeah. I use a lot of my birds of prey as foster parents so for their own species. So it isn't
0: just that they're used, as you said, as ambassadors for the public. They're actually, Correct. as you said, no, foster they, parents. They don't
1: necessarily feed them, but uh-huh. it's very important that the babies have their own species to interact with so they don't become too attached to people. And that that's an important part of what we do is to try to keep these animals wild. Not tame them. So how do you do that? Well, in this case, it is um, once I fed this baby up to get his weight up a little bit. Um, it, now, he had already what we call imprinted on his parents, which is... Species recognition and, and proper social interaction. So he knew he was an owl. Um, he wasn't so young that he would imprint on people. But once I got his weight up, then he, you know, I put him in a basket in the cage with my adult birds. He will then hear and see his own species and, 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 therefore interact normally with his own kind.
0: So if all goes well with this Owlet. He'll be released. And then tell me what that process is like. You take him back to where you found him? Well, sometimes
1: we do. With a baby that has not yet learned its territory. Um, and, and once it's independent of the parents, they kind of have to find their own territory anyway. It's more important to return an adult that may be part of a breeding pair that already knows its territory, uh, to return them where they come from when we can. Uh, with the young ones, we just try to make sure it's good habitat competition with, you know, with existing, um, birds or whatever the species is, is hard to, to ascertain. Um, and you hate to think that they get kicked out right away by resident, um, you know, birds or mammals of the own species, but that's a little hard to avoid. They have to deal with that anyway.
0: So, so is, <laughs> is it like sending your kids off to college? It kind I mean, of is. Yeah. So you go and you take them, and what do you do? You what you them
1: hope is in that a cage, and you
0: open the door. And no, do usually,
1: do do? I, I mean, I do release some things where I live, um, but I also know, I I kind of do know what lives around me, um, so I probably would not really. Well, I did last year release a great horned owl at my property and a now, and i know i have both in the area so whether i would do that again the next year or i'd pick another spot so do um, these guys know you i mean <laughs> do they- I, you know i uh, we don't have the same relationship as you do with your dog or your cat or yeah. even a pet bird so they may know me i think they recognize me when i'm in the cage but their reaction is that I'm an intruder. Mm-hmm. I'm a potential predator. Uh, in the case of the owls, they're going to hiss and clack at me and react defensively mm-hmm. because they don't want me near them, mm-hmm. which is which is good. good. They That's should want in. that.
0: Yeah. So if you're just looking at this past month, other than the owl, well, was okay. there anybody else? That-
1: <laughs> yes, I did have a barred owl that was hit by a car and it turns out it was only just stunned, but we get the calls any time of day or night, and this was uh, about 9 o'clock at night. This family um, had picked him up off the side of the road. Actually, he had kind of bounced off their car, and the teenage son went out, picked him up, wrapped him up in his jacket, and was holding him in his lap, and I Asking people to come to my house sometimes is not a good idea because I'm in the middle of state land, and it's not the most pleasant drive in the winter at night, mm-hmm. winter being only a month ago. <laughs> um, so I had my leather gloves up to my elbows trying to untangle this owl from the kid's jacket, and I was like, boy, I can't believe you just held him in your lap. and. It, But being in the dark, covered up, not seeing what he should be stressed about, the bird was very calm until we pulled the jacket over his head and then he's trying to talon us and, Mm. you know, get us with the beak. Turns out that bird really only just was stunned. And once I evaluated that he had no fractures anywhere and no head trauma that was warranted more than a couple of days rest um, we did take him back to where he was found and released him and it was that was wonderful Um, because they would be in the onset of their breeding season so if he was part of a pair he or she um, it was nice to return him so that was a good one Um, I released a woodchuck uh, just a couple of days ago that had come to me somehow as a juvenile it got its head stuck in a a metal ring. I have no idea what it was, but then the animal grew, and this ring was stuck around his oh, neck, gosh. causing a horrible, horrible injury. It literally ring all the way. It was ringed around his neck.
0: So you had um, to have it
1: like a vet come and no, clean actually, I was able to cut it off, and uh-huh. it was. Um, it was nothing that was going to require, you know, suturing or stitches, so it was just cleaning the wound and, and treating an infection and, uh, but that came to me in the fall and being a woodchuck that was going to hibernate, uh, Plus that was a an injury that took a long time to heal, but it did, and I was able to release him and boy, was I glad because he was not a happy camper. Um, so he he released him, released a chipmunk that I had overwintered, um, and then uh, what else? Oh, I had a call just last night from somebody that. And here's where we come into the um, uninformed public aspect of this. Sometimes people interfere with the unpleasantness of nature. There was a bird being attacked by other another bird, and they went out and rescued it. Um, it probably was a predatory hawk that missed his meal because the people, it's a hard thing to witness. The bird was being picked apart, and they rescued it, and, of course, it was such a severe injury um, that it died within an hour. Um, and that, again, that's a hard thing to tell people, to go in the house, walk away, and let it go, um, because those are predatory birds, and they they need to eat, too. And it, it's different. Uh, we draw different ethical lines, I guess you could say. Now, had it been somebody's cat... Attacking that bird, I have a different opinion about that. Um, birds do an awful lot of damage to wildlife, and them in the environment is different than a naturally occurring native hawk attack, or a fox, or a coyote that is a natural predator in the environment. So, cats are a little different, um, and I have cats. I love my cats, but mine are inside cats. So,
0: your lesson for people is basically let nature take care of itself. Unless humans have somehow interfered in some way, like a car hit, or... uh... Well,
1: yes and no. Um, I would say that with that example of a predator going after its natural Mm -hmm. prey, um, as hard as it is, I would say don't interfere. But people's reactions especially if it's let's say a coyote that's caught a fawn um it's hard to look at a fawn struggling to get away from a predator um i i recognize that but but yes the human aspect we do an awful lot of damage to the environment to animals to wildlife um Some of it's very hard to avoid in terms of just general habitat loss or vehicles. number one cause of injury we see to wildlife are vehicle collisions, and that's a tough one. Um, We all have to get places we need to go, trying to be more aware and observant to try to avoid hitting things. Uh, But a lot of the other things are either directly or indirectly related to
0: human activities. Well, tell us a little about your ambassadors, as you call them. Who are your animals that you keep with you, and where do you go, and what do you teach? Um, I would go
1: now... We, we do, it, my programs do somewhat offset my costs of rehabilitating wildlife because most rehabilitators are volunteers. Mm-hmm. So most of the expenses are out of pocket. So to do a program, it's not that I wouldn't do one for free, but we do like to get, you know, something to pay for our time and gas money and, and it goes directly back into the care of the animals. So we, I Depends hadn't on of the that. group. So all yeah. these
0: thousand or more people are doing this with no recompense, including Correct. you have to pay for food. I would assume and you have to. Oh my goodness! Yes,
1: okay. and a- actually, our license um, actually prohibits charging a fee for care. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean people can't say, you know, here's a donation towards the. The cause, mm-hmm. but we can't say a robin. Will, to rehabilitate a robin would cost you twenty dollars. To rehabilitate an eagle would be two hundred. We can't do that. I see. Um, our like license actually pro, prohibits that.
0: Well, I got you off the track. Back to the ambassadors. <laughs> but that was just important I thought, for people to realize. Um,
1: most of what we use are birds. The they're easier to display, restrain, and it, it's safer. You have to actually have a whole different license in order to exhibit mammals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have a USDA animal exhibitors license for that, which is a more involved and complicated process. Where they do actually have uh, caging standards. Um, someone actually comes and inspects your facilities for that. Uh, so that it's a lot easier to do birds, um, reptiles. I do use um, turtles as well sometimes uh, maybe a snake occasionally I always warn people because there's still an awful lot of phobia out there about snakes
0: yeah there <laughs> or is. just a
1: general dislike <laughs> so it, it's easier to use the birds and the birds of prey are easier because they're larger easier to restrain using falconry techniques actually the leather straps on um, around the legs and tethered to a leash on your glove or on a perch
0: and I, I've witnessed you during these sessions, and people are just mesmerized, um, I guess because it's so unusual to see yes. a bird like that up close yes. and to understand what it, it is. It is a wonderful
1: opportunity yeah. to see them up close.
0: Well, I looked up an article we did two years ago, and I'm afraid I don't even know what happened with this suit. There was, um, your group brought a suit against the state because they had suddenly (laughs) changed the rules, particularly focusing on deer, where the argument was that, um, the rehabilitators felt it was worthwhile to keep deer for a long enough time that they could heal and have a chance when they got back in the wild and the state was trying to limit it to 48 hours that that had to do with adult deer
1: that that time limit um what, what happened? How did that come out? Well, uh, the council, we lost our suit. Uh-huh. It was more on a technicality kind of thing as opposed to the merit uh, of the case. It's my understanding that DEC is reviewing these conditions, but nothing has changed yet. Um, they recognize, first of all, they didn't involve the regulated community at all, and they certainly have public hearings over anything having, and I'm not. this is not an anti-hunting statement, but... Anytime they're going to do anything to a hunting license, they are letting the community know. They are, you know, asking for input, evaluating how the regulated community feels about it. And um, they have a new survey system to do yes, just that. Yes, yeah. yes. And they did not do that with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not sure if they're going to change it, what they're going to change. So what we remain... Um, Are opposed to still is that 40. There's a 48 hour limit in terms of adult deer that are injured. Um, If they are, they either have to be euthanized or released within 48 hours. Now, I can say that honestly, there aren't too many rehabilitators that feel that they can handle adult deer, but those that do, 48 hours is just, it's, Inhumane. Uh, I don't think an animal with head trauma, you can expect if it's severe that it, you know, you don't want to release it when it's still stumbling around and and uncoordinated. And, you know, that that's just, it's just not right. Um, And to then turn your back on something that you could potentially help and say, I can't help it because I don't have enough time allowed Mm -hmm. to do It's just not right. Um so the I mean the other there are a couple of other objections we have uh, one is they and i don 't know how they expect us to deal with this bear cubs there 's a weight limit you're not supposed to rehabilitate any cub over twenty five pounds i 'm not sure how you evaluate the weight of an animal on the side of the road, you know next to its dead mother, not to be graphic about it, but um, and what do you expect the public to do if they see a cub and a dead mother, um, and we have to say we can't take it because it's 26 pounds, uh, which we really couldn't tell until we got it back and it weighed it anyway. So we object to that. And then the time limit, yes, on, on when they want us to release fawns. There are some rehabilitators who release in the fall. And most of those are ones that can just open a pen and let them wander, and they can kind of come and go until they get with the program. Some people do like to overwinter them and release them in the spring when they've had a little bit more time to mature. And if you look at the population dynamics of what you see through the winter, it's primarily the ones that are herded up are the does with the fawns of the previous year. So it's it's not an unnatural thing for them to hang with Excuse me. Hang with a mother throughout the winter until spring. Um, So we we object to that.
0: So this is still in flux, and it it is. And
1: um, I'm hoping they're going to relax that. I heard that they were going to. I know they had some meetings about it, but as of yet, license conditions have not changed. So we still have to, you know, we can't violate the license conditions. So we're still kind of stuck with it. It must be difficult. It is.
0: So, our time went too fast, but do you have any parting thoughts that you'd like people to know either about yourself? We didn't get too much into <laughs> how this affects you personally, which would interest me if it's hard to get, you know, release these animals. Sometimes that you it for. is. Yeah, or did you have any favorite? Um... Oh, I have a couple of favorites,
1: and I, I currently have a favorite that. Depending on how you look at it, you may not view it as a rehabilitation success. Um, I have a Bobcat that I raised, and in the 35-plus years I've been doing this, I never had a Bobcat until two summers ago, and I got two. The first one I got in was um, his eyes were just beginning to open. So he was right at about three weeks old. Mother had been hit by a car, and... um, so when you get one in that young your feeding schedule is like a bottle every 3 hours oh or gosh, so. Oh like having a baby you're yes, up all night. Yes, it totally is. <laughs> and and then when the eyes fully open and he gets visual focus, it it's people that he sees. Back to your other question about. Um, but
0: wait, wait! I want to hear the podcast. I'll finish. But okay.
1: but one thing we try to do is to avoid them getting used to people. Is mm. if we have a single orphan, we try to find another orphan of the same species. So rehabilitators are always sharing orphans to make sure that these animals have their own kind. Anyway, I, he, I had him about a month. And then I got a call about a second bobcat. But that one, because of the timing in the season, was a month older when I got it. So he came snarly, hissing, growling, don't come near me. Totally a normal bobcat attitude. And I thought, great, you know, once I'm sure he's healthy and won't expose my other one to any, you know, diseases or parasites, I'll put them together and, and, Mine will have another bobcat buddy. Well, that month that the original one spent with people just being cared for in a natural... You know bottle feeding schedule and cleaning and that sort of thing. Um, he was happy to be housed with the other one, and they did play and they weren 't aggressive to each other, but every time he 'd see a person he 'll he 'd start to purr and oh and totally ignore the other cat when he saw a person so he he just was so young when we got him and I think there are individual animals sometimes are a little more predisposed. To attaching themselves to whoever's taking care of them. Um, so I released the one and I opted not to release the other one because oh, he's so just. Have two, I have him, but I'm, and I've been going back and forth and if I wanted to apply myself to get that USDA permit to to keep a mammal for an education animal, but he's a big cat. He's probably a he probably weighs fifty pounds. Oh my gosh! Realistically, thinking that I would take him out into the public is is not. I don't think a realistic educational setting well, it
0: would certainly make an impression it, it
1: would and there are there are exhibitors that have those kind of mammals, um, but the other option is that he 's an educational animal at my my home where I rehabilitate now you can 't publicly display rehabilitation animals, so I would have to be able to separate out the rehab from the education, and that would mean people at my house constantly you know to make him available. As an education animal. I, I really don't want to do choice, that.
0: because how can he be released if he's so people I'm not going to ed- release
1: him. Okay. I'm yeah. not going to release him. I think he would do something totally inappropriate and get into trouble and probably end up dead, dead because yeah. of it. So I... I I'm probably going to place him at the Trailside Zoo at Bear Mountain State Park. They have another bobcat, a female, and they're building a brand new bobcat exhibit. And this is a
0: male this one?
1: It's a male. Oh. No, he's he's going to be neutered. Nobody. We don't need more bobcats in the captive. You know, I in see. captivity. But uh, he should be compatible with her, I think, and not I don't be even aggressive. Know. Do
0: bobcats are they? Do they mate for life? Or no, even, no, not they, really. No. not really. But he'll have a uh, He'll have a feline anyway. companion. He'll be, if he
1: still wants to be attached to people a few years down the road, he'll he'll be able to do that, too. So, But they're building a huge brand-new bobcat exhibit, so it'll be a wonderful place, and he'll still, um, he's gorgeous. He is a gorgeous animal, but he's a big boy. Yeah, gosh. So... That, you can't really call that a rehabilitation success, but he, of course, is one of my favorite animals now. We draw a line, too. We try not to let ourselves get attached. That's got to be hard. It, well, it is hard. And in, in his case, once I realized that he was pretty much a human-oriented cat, then you you relax the line a little bit. So that that's a different relationship than the ones we know we're going to release. Yeah. So it's not exactly a success, but,
0: but how but <laughs> exciting to have that bobcat in your life. It I was mean, exciting.
1: And I, I did just release, when I see them at the a distance know, it's thrilling. They're it, gorgeous. Yeah. And when I released the other one, um, you know, I thought I might see him hanging around because he you know, the other cat's still in the same cage and Trotted off and never saw him again. <laughs> so
0: it's great where you live. You said state land. You you know must have these well, animals it's, all around you.
1: I do, and it it's good in a way and bad in a way. I mean, we're we're five acres in the middle of state land, so we are surrounded by you know property uh, that is used by the public. Not just hiking and snowmobiling, but also hunting. And I'm again, I'm not an anti-hunter. I don't necessarily like it that close to me because being state land, you don't always get the most ethical hunters that use it. Um, there's a fair amount of garbage left behind by the snowmobilers, and we've we've heard shots taken out of season and this kind mm. of thing. And they don't always respect our posted signs. So, but it's yes, it's nice that. I don't have people looking down at what I'm doing all the time. Right, and then you can
0: release a lot of these animals literally in your backyard. Yes, yes. So do you have any closing thoughts for us? Um, no, but I, yes, I do. And that is that
1: I, despite sounding maybe a little negative that the public is ill-informed about things, I'm very grateful that they care. And it's a, it's a good thing, I think, that they care. So I don't want to discourage people from... If an animal does need to be rescued, I don't want to discourage them from doing that. I, I hope that they will. I just hope they'll be smart about it and consider safety issues and health issues and then try to get a rehabilitator uh, to help as soon as possible. And which brings up the point that how do they find us? Uh, people get our numbers from some veterinarians in the area, law enforcement, Five Rivers Nature Center. I work part-time at the Hike Preserve in Rensselaerville. They will give out my number. But the DEC does maintain a list of rehabilitators on their website. So that gives people access 24 hours a day because that's the downside. If you call some office after 4 or right. before 8, weekends, holidays, you may not get a person. But that's a downside
0: for you you don't yes.
1: call 24-7. But, it, and where I live, is not practical necessarily for a lot of people to come to me but, but we all work together in the area and if I uh, the first thing I'll say is where are you calling from try to direct people to, to other rehabilitators that might be closer and therefore could respond quicker but, but I am heartened that people do care and that they do have compassion for for wildlife Um, because I think once they care about that individual animal, we can kind of maybe get them to care a little bit about the bigger picture in terms of how we do impact wildlife um, just through our actions.
0: Well, that's a good note to end on, and thank you for all you do.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Appreciate it.